Compared to the entire Montana population, Indians had an incidence of infection 8 to 15 times higher than non-Indians during the same time period. But if the statistics for Butte alone are removed from that calculation, the incidence of tuberculosis among the Native American population was at least 20 times higher, making it the single greatest cause of death among Montana's Native population. That means, for Indian people, tuberculosis was more than twice as deadly as all other infectious diseases combined. With statistics like these, one would think that addressing the Indian's TB crisis would have been paramount importance to the state and national public health officials, as it was in Butte. Now, while they may seem to have little in common, Butte miners and Montana's Native American population did share similar rates of tuberculosis. They also shared conditions of widespread poverty, overcrowding, malnutrition, and poor sanitation, all of which will contribute greatly to increased prevalence of communicable diseases. Across Montana, infectious diseases such as influenza, measles, diphtheria, typhoid, scarlet fever, cholera, and trachoma had occurred with enough frequency and mortality that at the start of the 20th century, Montana formed the State Board of Health. The board successfully lobbied for quarantine regulations, undertook prevention and education campaigns, and helped put plans in place to improve sanitation infrastructure. City, county, and health health city, county, and state health officials also marshaled an effective response to Butte's TB epidemic. The Montana Tuberculosis Association was formed in 1904, primarily to combat TB in Butte, and the Butte Anti-Tuberculosis Society, established in 1911, was successful in opening a TB sanitarium at Galen in 1913, primarily, again, to address the need of Butte's mining families. Civic clubs and state organizations assisted in funding, um, funding efforts by raising and selling Red Cross seals, and the state legislature enabled the State Board of Health to track report tuberculosis, to secure accurate diagnoses, and to implement preventative public health measures. While these efforts were being implemented, Dr. Tuttle, one of the founding members of the State Board of Health, reported to Montana's governor that 1911 is the first year we've had death returns from the Indian reservations. And the death records show a higher death rate among the Indians from tuberculosis than prevails among white Montanans. While the sanitarium at Galen housed tubercular patients from across Montana and elsewhere, it did not admit Native Americans. Despite Tuttle's concern, the situation among Montana's American Indian population was largely ignored until the late 1920s. Even then, efforts seemed to be primarily focused on gathering statistics rather than addressing the health crisis itself. L.L. Benepe of the Bureau of Vital Statistics reported that between uh, 1925 and 1929, for example, tuberculosis accounted for 22 Indian babies under the year of age one. Those are deaths. Um, 69 Indian children's deaths between the ages of one and four years. That's 27% of all deaths for that age. 43 Indian children between five and nine years, half of all deaths in that age group. 
48 Indian children between 10 and 14 years, or 65% of all deaths for that age. And from ages 15 to 35, over half of all Indian deaths were from TB, while for those Indians over 35, there were more than 50% um, of the deaths were attributable to TB. Eventual responses to the Indian TB epidemic faced roadblocks in the form of federal government assimilationist policies, Indians' general mistrust of the Indian Bureau, and the reservation system itself. Adding to the difficulty was the confusion between local, state, and federal authorities as to whose responsibility it was to respond to the situation and in what matter they could do so. All of these factors stymied an effective and timely response to the tuberculosis health crisis going on on Montana's reservations. Now the reservation system, along with its administrative bureaucracy, was demonstrably responsible for the conditions on the reservations. Federal control of tribal funds, according to the whims of the Indian Bureau, guaranteed that tribes would have little or no say in how their resources and monies were managed, or that the needs that tribes themselves identified as important would ever be addressed. Meanwhile, the Indian Bureau was in the process of instituting an aggressive agricultural policy on the reservations. While allotment and the subsequent transfer of trust lands into fee patent status led to staggering land loss and widespread poverty among Indian people, America's insistence that Indians transform themselves into farmers and ranchers also took its toll. Tribal funds from surplus land sales drained quickly out of tribal hands into irrigation projects. On the Fort Peck Reservation, William Ketchen, a member of the Commissioner of Indian, uh, the Board of Indian Commissioners, described the policy of tribal money management as follows. <coughs> Under the existing law, all income from the sale of surplus lands will be returned to the government as reimbursement for the cost of construction of irrigation ditches. I am convinced that the raising of livestock on this reservation is the real keynote to the future advancement of the majority of these people. However, irrigation projects diverted money away from other immediate tribal needs, such as adequate housing, nutritional foods, health care, and basic sanitation infrastructure. When Ketchum interviewed residents at the Fort Peck Reservation in 1913, he discovered, to his dismay and surprise, that the Assiniboine and Sioux tribes objected to the completion of the Missouri River Irrigation Project on the grounds that the proceeds from the sale of the surplus land would be used to pay for the same. They also objected to the government requiring individual Indians to pay back tribal funds used to break up the land for cultivation. When I asked them, Ketchum says, their reason for this, they said that the government requires the Indians to borrow tribal funds and requires them to pay the sums borrowed, while at the same time, the government itself uses these funds to pay clerks to buy automobiles for the superintendent and does not pay the money back. Overriding the tribe's objections Ketchum advocated expansion of the irrigation projects and encouraged tribal members to take out short-term loans for the purchase of farm equipment. The Assiniboine and Sioux tribes responded to the third round of irrigation projects in 1917 with the following criticism. 
Two and two make four, but a ditch plus an Indian doesn't make a farmer. Yet the government has constructed a ditch for us at the fancy figure amounting to over $585,000. And the Indian office prides itself with all it has done for the Indian. We ask you, Mr. Cato Sells, what, did the Indians here ask for that ditch? No. Did they tell you that you could spend their money for a worthless ditch? Again, no. Why did you permit the spending of hundreds of thousands of dollars of our much needed money for a purpose for which you knew no benefit would ever come to Indian people? By the way, $585,000 in 1917 is equivalent to more than $11 million in 2017, a pretty significant sum. Ketchum's optimism and the Indian Bureau's agricultural schemes failed to take into account as well the unpredictable nature of Montana's weather, the challenges inherent in farming and ranching, and the fluctuation of markets. Although cattle prices remained high leading up to and during World War I, severe drought combined with falling beef prices afterwards crushed the economic opportunities for Native and Euro-American ranchers alike. In debt and without the money that had been generated by the surplus land sales or their sale of livestock, tribes were left penniless. Furthermore, tribal members who had lost their allotments through debt or through graft were now living with relatives. While at Fort Peck, Ketchum had met with dozens of Indians to assess their living conditions. The situation he described in his report to the Commission of Indian Affairs was, he claimed, typical. In camps on the river bottoms, Ketchum writes, near Poplar, some are living in tents and other in small houses. A number of families, old and young, were visited. Plenty holes, a very old poor Indian with his family and another family was living in a room about 10 to 12 feet across. There was only one small window in the house which had only a dirt floor, a veritable hot spot for tuberculosis. Conditions on other reservations mirrored those at Fort Pex and these conditions persist well into the 1920s. According to government physician R.C. Holgate reporting at the Crow Reservation in 1926, the Indian puts up a tent, lines it with blankets till it is almost airtight, puts up a stove, and has it so hot that a white man cannot stand it. There is a solid row of beds around the wall. A tent, 10 by 12 feet, will frequently house five to eight people. Sweat baths are the common customary means of washing, but when they do wash inside, there is just one small pan and a very limited amount of clean water to wash in and one dirty towel to wipe on. Even after identifying these problems, neither Ketchum nor Holgate ensured that action was taken to do something to address them. Thus, it is hardly surprising that these conditions continue to worsen into the 1930s. In 1932, the health officer at Browning, Dr. R. H. F. Schrader, recognized that overcrowding, poor nutrition, poor ventilation, and poverty were causative factors leading to the prevalence of tuberculation and other infectious diseases among the Blackfeet. He says, the funds available for distribution among the Indians being limited, and the inborn traits of the Indians being what they are, all factors conducive to the spread of tuberculosis. To more clearly state the situation, one must realize that the Indians are slow to change their mode of living and their habits. 
funds are not available to provide the best of homes or the proper food. Consequently, the conditions and environments provide an ideal place for the dissemination of tuberculosis. And now the spread of tuberculosis, tuberculosis is the greatest problem on Indian reservations. Whether intentionally or not, Schrader's report suggests that the reservation itself had created a health threat. Although Schrader alleged that inborn traits of tribal people detrimentally influenced their health conditions, he also clearly acknowledges that the bleak situation was due to a lack of funds, thereby implicating the Indian Bureau and the federal government who controlled tribal resources. Tribal funds, which had been very abundant when it came to irrigation projects, were suddenly non-existent when it came to house care, um, excuse me, health care, housing, and nutrition. Again, though, rather than recommending more funds be used to build adequate housing, officials like Schrader blamed the Indians for what seemed to be an irresistible pull towards their semi-nomadic lifestyle, much as Holgate had done when he visited the Crow Reservation. Holgate wrote, I believe that the Indian camp and their camping habit with all that goes with, this, with it is the biggest factor in all of the Indian's treatment. At least nine months out of the year, he is away from home. He raises no garden, no chickens, no hogs, and keep no milk cows. This naturally leads to poor nutrition and a very poor distribution of the food supply they, they get. There seems to be no reason why the health department could not declare these Indian camps a public nuisance and have the order enforced by the Indian department. Holgate apparently didn't consider likely reasons why the crows camped in the mountains in summer. One of them to continue practicing their culture, but another to gather uh, wild foods and medicinal plants that were still an important part of their diet and likely more essential than ever. He did, however, note that the ration supply soon gives out and then follows a period of leanness that usually becomes rather intense. During these periods, the famine becomes acute enough to start, especially in growing children, a condition of malnutrition. There seems to be times when the physical development must almost cease. That same year, 1932, the Office of Indian Affairs also hired Dr. H.J. Warner of the United States Public Health Service to investigate um, health conditions on the Blackfeet, Fort Belknap, Rocky Boy, Crow, and Tongue River reservations. The findings were alarming. X-ray examinations revealed that between 52 and 77 percent of Montana's American Indians tested positive for the disease. Even taking into consideration that testing was more accurate than it had ever been, the results seemed to indicate that the incidence of TB was increasing among Indians while it was decreasing among the rest of Montana's population. Warner made the connection between poverty and tuberculosis. He said that the highest rate of tuberculosis reactors, 77%, was found on the Tongue River Reservation, where the Indians are all full-bloods and live under extremely poor economic conditions and consequently are the poorest fed, poorest clothed, and least sheltered. The percentage of tuberculosis on the reservations varies in direct relation with their economic condition in the same manner as it does in white communities. Now, 
As the population of European Americans in Montana on or near the reservations continued to increase, which it did throughout the early half of the, at least for the first 20 years of the uh, 1900s, state health officials fretted over what they saw as a potentially dangerous situation that they were almost helpless to, to solve. The tuberculosis epidemic in tribal populations suddenly took on new urgency because health authorities feared that whites would get the disease from American Indians. Schools, which had played a central role in the spread of TB and other diseases, to and among Native children brought the magnitude of the TB problem to the public's attention because of an increased concern that TB-infected Indians were, quote, a health menace to local white children with whom they interacted. Thus, the recently integrated public schools offered health officials both a reason to advocate for health reforms and a place for implementing these reforms. State health officials and school authorities faced a dilemma, however, as to how to go about carrying out mandated state health policies, such as vaccinations for other diseases, while respecting the legal status of the children. They asked themselves, do American Indian children fall under the medical purview of the state? Or were they, even after citizenship, still the responsibility of the federal government? How far could state officials go to implement health policies on the reservations? When Indian service physicians entered the Ronan School to examine Native children in 1930, the children's parents protested. J.H. Crouch, Montana State epidemiologist, understood the complexity of, of the situation and clarified that in the control of communicable diseases, state, county, and local health officers and their assistants, school nurses and teachers, have the authority to examine children regardless of protests of the parents. Physicians of the Indian Health Service, however, are not included in the above-mentioned groups. He did not believe that school authorities could be held liable for permitting physicians of the Indian service to examine children at school. But as a matter of policy, Crouch recommended that the schools should consider Indian children as having the same status as white children while in the schools. And if necessary, the physicians from the Indian Health Service should make their examinations elsewhere. Health and school officials recognized that in many of the actions they were taking they felt they were probably acting arbitrarily and without legal authority. Everyone agreed that the matter, matter of medical jurisdiction needed to be settled. Um, and so the state officers, excuse me, the state health officers of Montana passed a resolution in favor of placing Indian Medical Service under the direct supervision of a chief medical officer. In response, Congress passed Public Act Number 760, which enabled the State Board of Health to deputize physicians working in the Indian Health Service, thus bringing them into the same set of regulations and reporting standards as public health officials. Streamlining the various agents and authorities in this matter seemed to solve the problems as to medical jurisdiction and empowered multiple entities to implement health-related measures. However, what's happening on the ground? The greatest steps that are taken towards confronting TB are made by Indian people themselves, and many of them are initiated by Montana's public health nurse, Henrietta Crockett. Crockett had first visited the Fort Belknap Reservation in 1927 and was horrified that the state had allowed tuberculosis to spread so violently among the tribes there. 
She worked with tribal member Julia Schultz to establish the first Federated Indian Women's Club at Fort Belknap. And together they used the organization as a platform to address health issues, particularly among women and children. Crockett also convinced several physicians and tribal members that cooperation between state and Indian service health officials was paramount to an effective health campaign. They agreed, along with the Montana Tuberculosis Association, that reservations needed American Indian medical personnel who could act both as nurses and doctors and as interpreters for patients on the reservation. Treating tuberculosis at this time required isolating infected persons from those who were uninfected. For decades, the government's policy had been to send Native children to boarding schools, often against parents' or tribal communities' wishes, where many of those children had contracted deadly diseases, like TB, and had never returned home. Tribes were now pressured to comply with state quarantine regula regulations and to send their children to former boarding schools that had been converted to TB sanitariums. Many of the TB-positive children from Montana who were sent to Lapway, Idaho, the sanitarium school, died at that school, only increasing tribal fears and the distrust of state health officials. Tribal members, however, said they would cooperate with the state quarantine laws if there were a facility in Montana for TB patients, but the state continued to send children to Lapway even while they were, there were vacant beds available at Galen. Most Indian patients simply remained home and were cared for in the small, understaffed, under-equipped reservation hospitals. By the 1930s, all the reservations except for Rocky Boy had hospital facilities, but these facilities had only eight to 30 beds, one Indian service physician, an Indian service nurse, and perhaps a public health nurse. None of them were equipped with x-ray equipment, which is essential for diagnosing tuberculosis, nor did any of them have quarantine facilities or personnel who could provide long-term treatment. Superintendent Forrest Stone and Browning said that in spite of recent improvements and the addition of two student nurses, the reservation still needed more highly qualified medical personnel with a genuine concern for the well-being of the Blackfoot people and that they had, quote, a crying need for a chest specialist to diagnose early tuberculosis. When early tuberculosis is diagnosed, there's a greater chance of people surviving. Often, though, it went undiagnosed for so long that people died of it. When asked where he housed tuberculosis patients, Fort Belknap Superintendent Ashbury replied, General Hospital TB Annex, outside in a tent. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, much of state officials' attention focused on drought relief, the impacts of the Great Depression, and outbreaks of meningitis and polio in the 30s and early 40s. The Montana Tuberculosis Association, however, kept tracking TB fatalities among Montana's tribes. The statistics for all tuberculosis deaths in Montana for the years 1942 to 1943 show that the mortality rate for Native Americans remained nearly 11 times higher than for whites. This biennial period, 1942 to 1943, was the last one in which the statistics were broken down to show the ratio of TB deaths, TB deaths of Native Americans to those of white Americans. 
Apparently, Montana's Board of Vital Statistics did not consider tuberculosis to be a significant factor after white mortality declined. The fact that the same trend didn't occur among the tribal population, however, indicates that the state was failing to ensure adequate treatment and prevention on the reservations. Indian people, the women's clubs, the field nurses, and the Montana TB Association, however, remained vigilant. In 1939, Henrietta Crockett used her position on the State Board of Health and the Montana TB Association to bring the National TB Association annual meeting to Billings. There, tribal members testified, almost unanimously emphasizing the need for a 300-bed TB sanitarium for Indians to be built in the state. Crees and Chippewas from the Rocky Boy Reservation were in especially dire straits because the only hospital that would admit them was at Fort Belknap, 85 miles away. The start of World War, World War II, however, diverted Montana's attention and neither the hospital nor the sanitarium were built. In 1944, Henrietta Crockett, school officials, the Tribal Council of Rocky Boy, and tribal members met again on the reservation. Tribal member Jim Denny said, we are again requesting a sanitarium in Montana for Montana Indians because it would be close at hand and in the climate the Indians are accustomed to. We know of cases where Indians have died in sanitariums in different states. The health of our people is important to us, and we feel that Indians here should be considered first instead of building internment camps to keep enemy aliens in. Denny's pleas for medical facilities to be established on the Rocky Boy Reservation were echoed in letters from Baptiste Samat, Shorty Youngboy, and Chief Goes Out. Just as it was able to divert tribal funds away from health care and into irrigation projects in the 19-teens, the U.S. government in the 1940s was able to find funds to build internment camps in Montana, but not to respond to the Cree's 20-year request for minimal hospital facilities. The Indians and Henrietta Crockett kept pushing. In 1948, with the support of the Women's Club of Billings and the backing of Billings doctor Samuel Lawrence Stevens and the full participation of both Crow and Cheyenne Women's Clubs, they were able to secure a mobile x-ray machine and a physician to x-ray every person over the age of 12 on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. Also in 1948, Crockett rallied the Montana TB Association and the women's clubs to bring Ruth Muskrat Brown, Secretary of the National Congress of American Indians and the Indian Advisor to National Federation of Women's Clubs to Montana. Bronson met with the Montana TB Association, toured the reservations, and put her influence to work with the NCAI. Eventually, the combined efforts of public health nurses Indigenous Advocate Clubs, and the TB Association paid off. In 1949, House Bill 147 to build an Indian wing onto the tuberculos tuberculosis sanitarium at Galen went before the Montana State Legislature. In her testimony, Crockett, as Executive Secretary for the TB Association, said, I was field nurse for the State Board of Health when I visited Fort Belknap Indian Reservation in 1927 and we checked up on the tuberculosis cases there. It was the first time I was ever ashamed of my own country. 
I wrote to Dr. Hubert Work, who was then Secretary of the Interior, and told him that conditions among the Indians in the state of Montana would make the Statue of Liberty weep tears of blood. If you don't give us this appropriation, I don't see how you can sleep at night. The legislature did grant the appropriation. And in 1952, the Henrietta Crockett Wing at Galen's TB Sanitarium opened. Nearly 40 years after white Montanans had access to these medical facilities, tribal members were finally admitted. Delegates from every Montana tribe attended the opening events. And when Henrietta Crockett spoke, she said, the dedication of the Indian wing marks a high moment in my life. Not because it's to bear my name. It would be far more fitting if it bore an Indian name in memory of the Indian children who have gone to early graves stricken by this enemy. My gratitude goes out to the Montana TB Association, the service clubs, the women's clubs, but most of all to the Indian leaders who kept faith through these long years of working and hoping that such a thing as this would be possible. There was opposition, prejudice, misunderstandings to overcome, but we kept on believing. Thank you.